Hi, Joel and Suzanne. Hi, my name is Art Wimberly. Hi, my name is Lauren. Hey, Suzanne, my name is Brad. Hi, Suzanne, my name is Chelsea. Hi, my name is Mark. Hi, my name is Sarah. Hi, my name is Nicole. Hi, my name is Rachel. And hi, I'm Joel Stabile, and you're listening to episode 71 of the Annie Graham Journey podcast. Today's podcast is a Q&A episode with the godmother herself. We're going to get a better understanding of threes and sixes and some of the stress and security movements for them. A great discussion on anxiety. I misquote a quote that I said that I love, so that was embarrassing. And we'll address a really good parenting question that came in about children and orientation to time. Today's plug, upcoming events, which there are a lot of with the new year. We've got... Uh, the Reverend doing Centering Prayer in Richmond. Stances has sold out, but Centering Prayer, there are still a few seats available. Suzanne is going to be teaching Know Your Number in Atlanta. Suzanne and the Reverend are going to be teaching the Enneagram and Spirituality in Nashville. We've got Care and Transformation coming up in Colorado, the Enneagram and Relationships in Little Rock, and Enneagram Stances in Austin, Texas. And a lot of these still have early bird pricing if you register by the end of the year, so be sure to take advantage of that. And an upcoming small event that we're really excited about. It's going to be December 23rd, which is in just a couple of weeks. Here at the Micah Center, Dr. Barbara Ryla, an Enneagram 7, is going to be joining Suzanne to discuss adoption, trauma, and the Enneagram. Uh, it's going to be from 10 to 3 on that Monday, and we'll have about 25 tickets available. So if you can come and you have a question that you really want to get answered, or want to start a discussion or meet other people who are there for the same reason, please visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com, which is the same spot that you can visit for tickets for all upcoming LTM events. And hopefully we will see you there. If you can't come because it's two days before Christmas or because you live across the country or whatever the reason may be, uh, that is going to be a free resource that is going to be made available for anyone who um, needs to hear it. So again, December 23rd at the Micah Center, lifeinthetrinityministry.com for all upcoming events and all other incredible products. With Christmas around the corner, you could probably even score a gift card. But that's enough of the plug. Let's go ahead and get to today's episode with Suzanne, and it includes a special new guest. Hi, my name is Rachel. My husband and I are trying to figure out if he is an 8 or a 5. Uh, when we first started learning about the Enneagram, we were both 1,000% sure that he was a five. Um, but as time has gone on, we're starting to question that more and um, wondering if maybe he might be an eight that moves towards a five. Um, I feel like these numbers don't get confused very often because stereotypes like introvert and extrovert and then um, some like easy signals like having a lot of energy or someone that withholds their energy um, – in him, these things aren't cut and dry. It, you know, different days look like different things. And I think we definitely could both see him being in the withdrawing stance, but he loves to challenge and he likes conflict. And so those things don't always line up either. Um, another thing we've looked at is time orientation. Um, and he would say that he lives in the future, um, but he can also sometimes identify with being doing repressed. And I'm a seven who is definitely future oriented. And it just kind of seems like maybe someone like a five who is a planner and doing repressed could look a lot like a future oriented person. And so we're just tr 
trying to figure out what else should we be looking at to figure out if he is an eight that moves towards a five or a five that moves towards an eight. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rachel, for that question. And we're going to piggyback another question that was asked that I think can all be, there's lots of questions there. Yeah. I think you can give a lot of information. The piggyback question is, uh, was written in, I'm wondering if you can speak about fives who are strongly extroverted, not just in the social subtype, but who gather energy from being around people and who need others around them. Am I possibly mistyping myself? Is there such thing as a genuinely extroverted five? So again, between the two questions, you got, got plenty. Hi, Rachel. I'm always learning. And I just learned from my daughter um, that there is such a thing as an ambivert. And um, the definition of that is a person whose personality has a balance of extrovert and introvert features. So I would say that I think there is such a thing as a social five who's an ambivert. I think there are also extroverted fives. I think there's a lot going on around um, the inability for us to nail down any of those words, extrovert, introvert, ambivert, and a social five. That's a lot to try to get through. So what I would suggest to you is that it all has to do with energy, all of it. And it doesn't matter if you're an extroverted five, you still wake up with the same amount of energy every day and every encounter you have with other people depletes your energy. It does not give you energy. And eights have the most energy of any number on the Enneagram. And they literally can go for more than one day till they drop. So what we have to get to then is a measure of energy for both questions. And I would suggest that there's a good chance that there's mistyping if a five says they're energized by encounters with other people. My experience with all my years of teaching is that a five who gets lonely or who wants to be with people is energized for about two hours and then it's over and they want out. Mm -hmm. And that two hour energy cost means that it changes what they do with the rest of the day. In our most recent path between us study guide group, we had a five and he was talking about his energy and about how at the end of the day he's done. Well, for his job, he got when he's like every now and then they'll call it, 10 or 11 at night it, it uh, he works with people in recovery and uh, and he's a five and so he's like when they call at 11 or 10 even though it is my job it seldom goes well yeah like but if it can wait till the morning yeah oh my that he's in the morning he's giving it his best one up but he doesn't have anything left mm -hmm. at, at the end and he was just talking about how nice it would be for them to know that about him right whereas I think with an eight, clearly 11 o'clock. No problem. Yeah. So that might be another way to uh, answer those kind of questions That's is right. substitute yourself in stories like such as that. That's a good one. How would you reply? That's a really good one. And the other thing I would say is that eights 
and fives express themselves very differently when they're angry. Eight anger is straight up and factual. Five anger is cynical and sarcastic. And eights don't bother with cynicism and sarcasm. It's just not necessary for them. They don't feel a need to cover or reframe or or put a wrapping of any kind around anger. When they're angry, they're just angry. Hi, Joel and Suzanne. This is Aaron from Jupiter, Florida. Um, I have a question about parenting. I have three little boys, and um, I'm really trying to better understand orientation to time. I know it's not a good idea to uh, to try and type your kids, but I was hoping that maybe I could figure out their orientation to time. Um, so I was wondering, how would we go about doing that? And how would figuring out their orientation to time help uh, our parenting? Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate all you do. Bye. Hi, Aaron. Um, three little boys is a lot. So I'm going to try to be helpful. I think that there are some tricky places in terms of recognizing orientation to time. But I think there is a way that I can probably help you in a big picture kind of way. Children who are oriented to the past are generally not content with a response for something that you're going to do in the future that you think is going to make them happy. If you want to help children who want things to be like they used to be or who want to do what they did last week or who want the teacher that they had last year or who want to play with only the kid that no longer lives in your neighborhood, that orientation to the past kind of stuff, if that's what you're faced with, you cannot get them out of that place by focusing on the future. You have to do it by focusing on the present moment. Man, we've got our oldest we think is uh, withdrawing stance. Yeah. And j- real quick, just a quick rundown. Withdrawing stance, four, fives, and nines oriented to the past. Uh, dependent stance, ones, twos, and sixes oriented to the present. And then aggressive stance, three, sevens, and eights oriented to the future. So I'm a seven. And with this daughter, who we think is in the withdrawing stance, when she is hurt by something, or disappointed about something, you know. I'm like, hey, ne- next time we'll do. It. You're right. That that is that zero does not helpful. work. Doesn't work. You can't skip a child whose orientation time is the past to the future and please them. So there's no tomorrow, no next week. That don't work. You have to address it in real time. And no, we can fix this and do something else. Like yep. they're hooked on what has happened. That's right. That's right. And so the the goal is to move them to real time. And that's not intuitive. It's counterintuitive. Our intuitive goal is to move them to the future. The other thing is don't be dismissive about what they say about the past. Accommodate that by talking about what you're going to do right now. But manage what you're going to do right now with asking them questions. But at the top, say... I want you to tell me what would be helpful to you, and I'm going to tell you whether or not I can give it to you. And then you got to do that. And sometimes 
what would be helpful that they say, you have to just say no to. You just have to say no to that. And they have to do the work of figuring out what will get them off of high center and able to move forward. If you have children whose orientation to time is the present moment, the past and the future matter to them. And when they are struggling in the present moment, you have to be counterintuitive again. So a child who's not happy in the present moment, who wishes things were like they were last summer or in third grade or before, you remind that child of the things that weren't good last summer, that weren't working for them in third grade, and make it part of a bigger whole. With children whose orientation of time is the present and you want to talk about the future, don't talk about specifics in the future. Talk about how life has a way of giving us what we need and we have to live into the future. And you have to use appropriate, age-appropriate language, of course. But you want to be nonspecific about a future because you can't guarantee it. So what you want to do is focus with the child on how they learn different ways to manage things so that when this kind of thing happens again, it, it won't hurt so much or bother them so much or make them so unhappy. Uh, specifics don't work. If you talk to me as a child about the past, yeah. oh my gosh, why are we living in the past? Why are we talking about That's this? That's right. Especially past hurts. We're moving on. Yeah. I have moved on. That's not helpful for me, but I can see how that can be so helpful in tying those two for present-oriented yeah. yeah, you can't. You And anytime you talk about the future, you need to be nonspecific. Because any child whose orientation at time is the future is going to expect that whatever you said is going to happen. So don't be specific. Be... I would think any child whose orientation time is the present, that would be equally... Equally. You can't... You cannot be specific. You just can't do it. And and orientation time in the past, those kids can't even see the future. Mm-hmm. So that's a total waste of time. Just like people who are oriented to the future can't see the past, don't remember the past in the way that you would as the parent, and don't want to talk about it. So what you have to do with kids who are in the aggressive stance, threes, sevens, and eights, whose orientation of time is the future, what you have to do with those kids is um, try to reorient them to the present moment. The future's not here yet. But do it without doing any dream killing. Like, let their imagination continue to be free, but orient whatever it is they're dreaming about or wanting to do to what we're doing right now. So it's about, the one word I would give you is is about tethering. And children who are oriented To the past, you have to tether to the present. Children who are oriented to the future, 
you have to tether to the present moment. And children who are oriented to the present, you have to tether to both. Part of his question was, how do you identify your kids' oriented time? And there were a lot of things right there that'll be helpful. One story that I love about Jolie, who we, she's about to turn eight years old. We think that she's an aggressive number. Yes, don't, we do. Don't know which one. Think she's aggressive. But this, either way, even if she's not, this is a great story that sounds pretty future-oriented to me. Uh, one Saturday morning, Whitney and I were in the dining room working on our computers. And it was early. She, she wakes up, gets out of bed, walks down the hallway, walks into the dining room, and says, first words out of her mouth, what are we doing after this? Yeah. That's it exactly. That not good. Good morning. Nothing. What we're we gonna do for breakfast right yeah. now? What? What's next? What are we gonna do after this? And that's a perfect thing for us to work with because you don't want to answer that question with what you're gonna do that day. You want to answer with, well, right now we're gonna have breakfast. Yeah. Keep it in the now. The other thing I would say though is a, a nuance would be. That I've always taught you can't tell fours and sevens apart as children. And one's oriented to the past and one's oriented to the future. But you can nuance that out when they... The thing that you got to know is they're always both going to want more. So you have to find out why they want more. Mm -hmm. That should help you if you know your child figure out orientation of time. Hi, my name is Nicole and I'm a three on the Enneagram. I am a midwife of many years and have five kids under eight. And I have a question about going to the low side of six and nine as a three. <clears throat> I have found through the past few years that I can see myself coming to nine in rest to restore energy. And so that's one of my questions is if you could just address that as not necessarily a disintegration, but a place that threes in tiredness have to go to find rest. And then my other question is, I find as I'm, I'm tired as a, as a parent and as a three parent who's never going to see success or arrive as a parent um, with, with my children, I find that I have just generally less energy outside of the home to image craft. And so I have in the past year started experiencing some social anxiety, particularly in situations where it's going to be a social event with people that I haven't seen in a long time. And I wonder if that is sliding to the low side of six. Um, so was hoping that you could address both of those questions. Thank you so much for the impact and influence and work that you're doing. I certainly appreciate it. Okay, we get to make a uh, Anagram Journey podcast debut today. Lindsay is here Lindsay is a six on the Enneagram and an employee with Life in the Trinity Ministry. Everyone, welcome, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. She's and also one of our favorite people. Yes, that, that too. Yeah. Okay, well, let me just say that I, I think uh, integration and disintegration are equally valuable 
ways of talking about stress and security. I actually learned the Enneagram with integration and disintegration. But I talk about stress and security because I get that, and I know what it means, and I don't have to think it through. And I don't have to think about what it means for me to not be integrated or I, I just know when I'm in stress and when I'm in security. So that's why I've adopted that language. From that point, let me say that I also think it's very important for us to be aware that a move on the Enneagram in stress or security can be to the healthy side or the unhealthy side of the other number. And there's traditional teaching is not in agreement with that. Traditional Enneagram teaching is that in security you go to the high side of that number and in stress you go to the low side of the number. So having said all that to set the table, now I'm ready to answer the question. And Lindsay, I don't know if this is true for you, so we'll see if what I say works for you. And if it doesn't, then we'll talk about that together because I'm not a six. So having said all that, the low side of nine for a three is when you're laying on the sofa, I guess you don't get to do that with five children under eight, but it's when you don't want to do anything. When you want life to pass by, time to move by without participation from you. And the low side of six is, I think, Lindsay, when you have anxiety and angst about whatever you do. But in my understanding and observation, that anxiety and angst, when it's a three in the low side of six, it's expressed as kind of um, trying to get a lot done without a lot of focus to it, in part, but also trying to do too many things at one time in order to get back to even keel. That sounds right. I think... For me, when I move to three, I get kind of frenet that frenetic activity, yeah. running around aimlessly, yep. not accomplishing much. Yeah, and I, and I think when three moves to you, they bring that angst and um, have the same response, which is not true outside of the Enneagram triangle, hmm. in my experience. So I, I want to talk about the fact that the best way you learn to draw from the healthy side of both numbers is to learn what both numbers look like when they're healthy. And because threes are aggressive numbers, they're always moving forward. And sixes, the great gift that sixes bring to threes, I think the greatest, is that they see things in context and they can move slow enough to, to be with the people that they're trying to lead. And so I think on the high side, when three comes to six, they don't need to be the star. They can be part of the group, which is kind of your sweet spot, right, as a six? Yeah, I think when I'm at my best, I'm, if I'm, even if I am leading a group, the most satisfaction I get is out of kind of the synergy of the group. It's not out of me being front and center necessarily. Yeah, and in fact, do you like front and center? Um. Not not usually. I have to think about that. Yeah. Depends on the context, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So that was perfect because I, I, 
other numbers just are not as aware of context as you are. And it makes me happy that I think there are more sixes than other numbers because we need to do things contextually. Contextually. So in terms of nine, the high side of nine and the great gift of nine is that they see two sides to everything. And once threes have an agenda, they, they're about achieving the goal that they set around their agenda, which can leave other people out. And um, I think to consider that nine is a place for rest, I think that is in part a misunderstanding of nineness. There's a difference in not being affected by things and resting. And it's a significant difference. And I think there's a difference in resting and numbing. And nines are good at numbing. And they're good at being unaffected by things. So as a three, I would encourage you to be careful that you aren't calling either one of those things rest. You talk about when we go to our uh, stress or security number, the focus changes. Uh So as a fellow aggressive number, seven, going to five uh, in security, the big thing of the focus changing is my speed. And I, th- I wonder if it's the same for, for threes and in the movement to nine. So for me, all the seven and going and going and going that time kind of space of five of slowing down mm-hmm. and not doing that. I wonder if that's what she could be talking to or that, that absolutely maybe. is a good point. And then the way you evaluate the health of that move because you're going to slow down every time you take on five energy. The health is what do you do with the slower way of with being? With the change of pace. Yeah. Yep. And is it productive? Mm-hmm. And I think the same is true for a three that goes to nine. It, is it, do you learn something productive from what she is calling rest? Is, is the inverse of that true for you, Lindsay? Like uh, when you make the move from six to three? Do you speed up? Yeah. I mean, I think, and, and thinking again about leadership, um, because that's, you know, when you asked about if I liked being front and center, yeah. if it's something that I really care about and I'm passionate about, I love it, but it is also a three space for me because I have to have, I have to be able to speed up and I have to project confidence right? and I have to move things along and I have to um, deal with interpersonal dynamics going on if I'm leading a group. So I think all of that, um, that speeding up in a context where it's something I want to be doing and I'm excited about is easier to go to the high side of three as opposed to if I'm at home or in a, you know, one-on-one situation. Yeah. Just getting stuff done. Yeah. Whether or not it needs to be done today or not. Right. Just moving. Right. Yeah. And, and I think we all need to be mindful of how we're using the energy we have. So we talk a lot about energy in nines and in fives. But we don't talk about energy in other numbers. And I I get in a lot of trouble as a two that moves to eight in stress because then I just start doing huge projects, Joel, as you can attest to, that I can't do alone and that I can't finish in a day. 
if I'm in unhealthy eight space. It's like I think I've, with the energy that comes with that, I think I can accomplish so much more than I can actually get done. I think that explains also for people who heard the podcast with my sister, Jenny McNulty, her dilemma with the being a nine with that big eight wing, right. because in her eight wing, she says, you know, does this stuff that then she can't and doesn't want to right. do as, as a nine. Yeah. In her core number. Exactly. Right. And I think what happens too is that sixes generally in average space on any given day don't do a good job with estimating how much time a project is going to take. So I would bet you two start projects when you're in three. Yes. That you don't have time to finish. I start many things at once. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of <laughs> circle around and work a little on this and move to that. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 I, because it's a stress move for me, I, I um, control what I can. And in the years that we lived in parsonages, so it's not our home, and I couldn't do big things like paint, I just moved furniture. And I would get a piece of furniture to the middle of the room and couldn't get any farther. I mean, like I, it, it was a thing. Just, and my children. You just show up home from school and your room has been rearranged. <laughs> and yeah. the answer every time, except for maybe like once, is, it, is the best it's ever been. Best it's, like, ever, best been. it's ever been. <laughs> That's the right answer. I love the quote that uh, I hear a lot from you and the Reverend. Uh, uh, and I don't think it's an original one from y'all. You'll know who it is. But, uh, oh, I think it's, is it McLaren? What you focus on determines where your energy goes. No, what you focus on determines what you miss. What you miss. And your energy follows your focus. Your focus, okay. And your energy follows your focus is not Brian McLaren. Mm -hmm. What you focus on determines, determines what, what you miss. miss is Brian McLaren. And both are really important. And I think for me, it's the... When I do have a lot of things going and I'm not being mindful, I'll literally stop because as seven, I love that I've got a lot of things that I need to do. You know, we've got podcast stuff, we've got products, we've got the website, we've got social media, variety, phone, all these things. And I'll, if I'm not mindful though, I'll just stop doing something because I've been doing it for 35 minutes. Yeah. And I'll go do something that doesn't need to be done right then at right. all. Right. And I'll, I'll just bounce around. And that's no good. And man, I just love hearing y'all talk. So I'm losing sight a little bit of Nicole's. I know we're talking about stress and security, but it seemed like focusing on what's important is going to determine where her, her energy goes that's and whether right. that's going to be the high side of any of those three numbers, her actual as a three or six or nine. I think that's what I was trying to get back to. I think that's true. And I think for her to talk about, um, not necessarily feeling good about herself because she's not able to do the image crafting that gave her security as a three before she had all the littles to take care of. And, and I think um, that's a good opportunity to rely less on image crafting and more on the goodness of who you are as a human being. And I think that's always a good thing for threes to do. But I see it as insecure space because, like, I make my way in the world by trying to be helpful. And you, Lindsay, make your way in the world by being concerned about the common good 
And Joel, you make your way in the world by adding necessary humor so that people can be more logical than they tend to be. I think threes tend to make their way in the world with image crafting by being what they think people want them to be. And so anytime a three is put in a position to be more of who they are and less of who they think people want them to be, the more they realize that they're loved for who they are and not for what they do. And that, at the end of the day, is all gift. And one more comment, and then we got to get on to the next question. Uh, what you said there, I think people really, people who have been told they're a three or identified as a three and don't like it, and then people who think that they know threes and aren't fans of it, the that that they try to be who you want them to be. I just see that as very selfless. Absolutely. And people misconstrue that as selfish. Absolutely. And, and it's selfless and people misconstrue it as fake. Mm-hmm. And it's not fake. It's adapting. Right. They're not pretending to be who you want them to be. They're adapting themselves so that they can be who you want them to be. And back to the question of that young mom needing rest, the less adapting you do, the less rest you need. Because it takes a lot of energy to be what everybody else wants you to be. And as a young mom, you're never going to be at one moment what five children want you to be. So you can give up on that. Like, And she said, I'm never going to be successful at this. And I would say that's not true. It, you can be very successful as a mom of five children, and you particularly can when you care enough to work on yourself and ask the kind of questions that you sent in and asked, uh, called us and asked us to answer. So I, you're on the right track. Okay, so happy that we've got Lindsay here for this. Next question is, uh, so I'm a counselor, and I was introduced to the Enneagram a few years ago. I would love to hear you speak to how anxiety looks in each number. I often have clients that assume they're six because they have anxiety. I believe we adopt filters through life that aren't necessarily the lens through which we see. They are learned or ways of adaptation. I believe fear and anxiety can be one, especially in our society society today. Sorry, I'm struggling with reading. Any number can struggle with anxiety. As a four, I've struggled with it. I think it would be very helpful to explore what anxiety can look like in all numbers and how to differentiate between learned or acclimated or adopted filters versus our true lens. So I'm going to start working through it until I get to six, and then you answer six because you're here and you'll be way better at it than me. And then I might have a theory at the end. I've never been asked this question, so I'm going to answer it, and then I might have an additional new theory at the end. Ones have anxiety about whether or not they're good. Twos have anxiety about whether or not they're wanted. Threes have anxiety about whether or not they're successful. Threes have anxiety about whether or not they're seen as successful. Fours have anxiety about being seen and known and understood. Fives have anxiety around uh, feeling incompetent 
are incapable and around not being able to read what other people want from them. So my anxiety is about um, worst case scenario, but I've also noticed um, as I've done more work in therapy that anxiety tends to cover up everything else. And so if I, I think anxiety is a more familiar place to me than some other negative emotions like anger or frustration or envy or any of those things that in my mind I think are not signs of a healthy person, which that's not true, but I have to tell myself that. Um, So anytime those other emotions crop up, I think the anxiety covers it. And I've noticed if I allow myself to kind of welcome the anxiety, then the other feelings sort of bubble up and I can deal with those. And then once I deal with the other feelings, the anxiety goes away. So the anxiety is definitely attached to the other feelings I don't want to have. Ah, that's good, good, good. Joel, what about your anxiety? I, when I read you all the question, I was like, hey, Lindsay's here. Let's yeah. take advantage yeah, of this. Yeah, you didn't think you were going to have to answer it, did you? Well, I, I did answer it. I, like that, I guess it sounded tongue-in-cheek, or, but I was like, having anxiety is a waste of resources. There like, you go. <laughs> time and energy spent on being anxious. So I have, I have fear, but then I address the fear. And I don't use anxiety. I don't use anxiety to address fear. And I do everything I can to move past the fear as quickly as possible. I know that you say the def- in Enneagram work, the definition of anxiety is the fear of possible future outcomes. I w- I'm curious. I, I forgot what the actual definition of anxiety is. Well, I don't know. I I'm not sure that I could identify it for everybody, but I'll tell you what my response is to what you're saying. People who have anxiety know they have it. And the reason you're looking for a definition is because you're putting it all in your head because you reframe anxiety so quickly that it doesn't, it, it's not a thing for you. You re you use the energy for something else. Because you think it's wasted on worry. So worry and anxiety are not the same thing. When I feel anxious, it's someplace, I think, between fear and worry. Is that true for you? Yeah, I think so. And for you, it's, I'm not going to feel this. But you do deal with fear. And you deal with fear in the same way that you deal with anything that's not in the upbeat, happy, happy, upbeat, happy half of emotions. And that is that you just reframe it into something else. Fear, you, in my observation, as your mom, I watch you either address it and fix it or think about it. And anxiety is more a bodily thing than a thing that's in your head. What is... I'm trying to think of something that people... I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, before you say anything else, do you ever feel anxious? Not think about something, but do you ever feel anxious? That's what I was about to ask y'all. What is something not... Like, I heard heard you go through the list of, you know, threes, anxiety about this. Yeah, let's be sure we come back to nines, though. Let's just don't forget that. eight and nines. Eight and nine. What is something that... What does it feel like? A scenario. Oh, I've got so much anxiety... Because 
of X. I'll give you an example. In the years through life that any of my four children were struggling, uh, which are different ages for all of you, when you were struggling, I was anxious if I couldn't get in touch with you. I bodily felt felt it when I couldn't get in touch with you. When BJ was struggling, if the phone rang and it was the school, I had an, uh, a rush. What's that called? Uh, an adrenaline rush. I, like I would feel it bodily if caller ID was the school mm-hmm. because I didn't get good calls from the school when he was having a hard time, right? So um, it's, a, it's a bodily response for me that leads to nonproductive thinking. <clears throat> That's the same for me, I think, too. I think for me, it feels like it's disconnected, actually, from my thinking, which maybe that is unproductive thinking. But yeah. I, my body tells me I'm anxious when yeah. I don't think that I'm anxious. Right. right. Or does your, does your body respond to something like a, a phone number and then you think not productively, but you make up stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can make up everything. So yeah. like if the kids who were in, when y'all were in college... You remember calling me one like two in the morning and saying, I forgot what you said about apologizing and I need to, I got to apologize right now. I tried to call you at two in the morning. You did call me at two in the morning. You You called me. I did answer because the phone was by my bed (laughs) and your dad's a pastor. So, and, and it was, can you help me remember that thing you were teaching me about apologizing? That was your question. So I'm not going to go into that, but what I, what I'm going to say is, Anytime y'all were out as high school or college people and my phone rang in the middle of the night, I believed that it was about something bad about one of you. Our phone has rung in the middle of the night for all of my marriage to your dad because he's a pastor and there are emergencies in the middle of the night. My phone at home rang in the middle of the night because my dad was a doc and there are emergencies in the middle of the night. I didn't, re- I don't respond to it that way now. I don't think one of you is hurt now. If the phone rings, I think it's for your dad. Yeah, I don't have a bodily response to things. Ever? I don't think so. And, and I mean this, if I do, it is a millisecond. Like, the, uh, if, Oh, I forgot this. Yep. But it is a millisecond, and then it's, well, it's either I can, let's use that for an example. You know, sometimes you're, you're in the car, you're like, O-S. Uh-huh. Um, and I, you know, my heart will skip a beat, but skip a beat, that, that's the end of any anxiety. Yeah. It's either I can call someone and help, or after the rundown of things in my head, the last option, which is the option that... You know, something will be chosen is what's done is done. Like so there's not a. This happened to me today. Um, I had a complicated morning and I was a little late leaving to get here. And I have this thing about the garage door. Like, do you have it too? Yeah. About it closing? Yeah. And yeah. whether or not it closed. And yep. do you ever go back and look? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm so happy now. I feel so much more healthy as a human being. 
So I have a thing about the garage door, and I go back and check it. And I've done it ever since there was such a thing as push-button garage door openers and closers. So today I thought, I'm late. I can't go back and check the garage door. So I drive for two or three blocks. And it doesn't happen every time I leave. Sometimes I'm in the present moment and mindful, and I know that I'm putting it down. But when I'm in a hurry or something, I usually think that. And today I thought, I cannot have the anxiety of worrying about that garage door and do a good job recording podcasts today. So I had to go around the block and go back and check it. And I said to your dad when I was talking to him on the way here, it has never been up. And all the times I've ever gone to check it, it's never been up, but I still have the anxiety that this could be the time. It would take one time for that to happen. And I would get out the label maker and have on my steering wheel, look at the garage door. And then I'd go for the rest of my life about my life and never have anxiety about the garage door. Yeah. Yeah, that's Which because... Which we could do. We got the label maker here in your thank car. Thank you very much. That's because you are thinking dominant. Just saying. All right, eights and anxiety. That's tricky. Because I believe every number experiences anxiety at one time or another. But I, I'm going to guess... Because eights, of course, don't talk about it. And maybe pe- people will let us know. I'm going to suggest that potentially eights only have anxiety about betrayal. I, I just can't imagine them. We'll see what we hear from folks. And nines have anxiety about conflict. There's no doubt about it. You talked about both of y'all about how much of a, it's a body thing. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious with eights and then also nines and ones, how much, you know, when you're like, I don't know about eights. And I wonder if they even know, because if it's a body thing, everything's a body thing. It seems like for mm-hmm. eights, it's all good. When that's the water you swim in, it's just, yeah, it's bodily thing for me for sure. I just, I feel it instantly. Thank you guys so much for listening and for all your support. Please visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com to come to an upcoming event or for more Enneagram resources. Also, keep sending your questions in to theenneagramjourney.org. And it always helps to get a five-star rating. And if you've got the opportunity and time to leave a review, let us know what you like and what you'd like to hear.